Good morning. If you have a Bible, would you please open up to Matthew chapter 16? And if you don't have a Bible but would like one, we would love to get one into your hands. Just raise your hand and we'll get one to you soon. And when you get it, please join us in Matthew 16. And if you don't have a Bible, please accept this as a gift from our church to you. Uh, Please feel free to keep it. So as you're turning to Matthew 16, a a few things I want to say before I read the text for us this morning. So uh, we have paused our time walking through the Gospel of John, and we're doing a series right now on the church, and this morning is the third message in that series. The series is called Ecclesia, which is the Greek word that we translate it as gathering or church. And we are specifically looking at features of a faithful church. Um, I've said many times that one of the most assumed and least investigated doctrines of the last 150 years is the doctrine of the church. That was a that was a key thing the reformers studied in the Reformation 500 years ago, but then the church has kind of drifted, especially here in the West, where individualism and pragmatism. Uh, reigns. So, so with that said, today, um, speaking to my church family, if I'm not mistaken, the text that we're covering today is a text that that our church has not walked through together for over 30 years. So, so this will be some new um, or new perspective on some doctrine and information that um, that we have not gone through together. And so, I'm excited for that. Also, by the way, with this long introduction is the sermon is a lot. I'm going to invite you to be Bereans, which is Bible talk for going home and searching the scriptures and studying to see if what we see this morning is so. Um, But also that the sermon today is a little bit more luxury than sermony, if that makes sense. Um, I guess at the end you'll see if it makes sense or not. So that's where we're going this morning. Um, And so if you would, join me in Matthew 16. We looked at this text last week, verses 13 to 19, and our focus today is fiercely on verse 19. So we're building off of last week. That's where we're going. To understand what is a church and what are we. And I hope that the takeaway for all of you who are believers today is that your understanding of what it means to be a Christian and connected to a local church would just be so enriched by Jesus' words that you would have new vistas opened up of what a privilege it is to be sitting here together this morning. So with that long introduction, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, and others one of the prophets. But Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and 
the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, this is the word of Christ. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, we we know from your word, from Jesus' own lips, that he only speaks and teaches and preaches what you give him to say. And this morning, we're turning our attention to this confusing words that Jesus speaks about giving the keys of the kingdom of heaven and binding and loosing. And Lord, so we pray that by your spirit, you would illuminate the Bible, you would open up scriptures for us to understand But not just understand, to believe and to rejoice at your mind and plan for local churches. Lord, friends who are here that don't yet know you, we pray for your grace to bring life to their hearts and that they would um, cling to you, Lord Jesus, and the amazing grace that you pour out upon all who cry out to you for salvation. So, Lord... Make us attentive to your word. To that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people said, Amen. So, we are in Sermon 3 of this series on the church. Two weeks ago, we took this huge perspective and asked the question, where does the church, where does the local church fit in God's cosmic plan of redemption, from creation to new creation. And we saw two weeks ago that the church, that is, that's what you call the people who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the church is the purpose and climax of redemptive history. And now we're the forever people of God. Last week, we turned here to our text today, to Matthew 16, And we looked at the conversation in detail between Simon Peter and Jesus. And here is Peter being the first confessor of what the Bible calls the gospel or the good news. The bad news is that God's condemnation hangs over all of humanity. And the good news is that God has stepped into creation in the person of his son, Jesus Christ to rescue and redeem sinners like you and me by living on our place, dying on our behalf for our sins, and rising from the grave. But what was unique last week is we saw that Jesus intends his gospel, the good news of what he did, to build the church. So I posed the question last week, or or, or remarked rather, that the, the local church is not an optional add-on to the Christian life. Jesus doesn't save us. He doesn't make us his sheep and he's the pastor, the shepherd to just let us go wander off out of the sheepfold. No, he builds local sheep pens called local churches. And so we saw last week the local church is not an optional add-on to the Christian life. It is the Christian life because the gospel does one thing builds churches, builds local churches. So this week, though, what was missing last week was verse 19. We got uh, Peter's great confession. Jesus affirmed it. Jesus affirmed that, yes, Peter, 
You have the who of the gospel right, namely Jesus, God the Son, and you have the what of the gospel right, all the details of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But here's what we did not do last week. We did not look at this mysterious passage of what in the world are the keys of the kingdom. So what we're doing today is we're doing an overview of what this means. And Lord willing, the next three weeks, we'll drill down in detail on different facets of what it means for a local church to hold the keys of the kingdom. Because that's it's weird language to our ears. What is Jesus talking about? So if you're taking notes, the sermon today comes in five parts. Here they are. Number one, we have a series of questions. Number one, to whom does Jesus give the keys of the kingdom? Who holds them? That's an important question. And we're going to be flipping between Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Then we're going to ask the next question, what are the keys of the kingdom? And then going further, what is binding and loosing that Jesus speaks of? That's point number three. And then we will, uh, in part number, or point four, how does the local church exercise? How, how do we wield, how do you, how do you wield keys? How do you use the keys of the kingdom? And then five brief ways, or rather, point number five, ways to respond to the message. That's where we're going this morning. So if you would, um, look at Matthew 16, verse 19. We're going to zero in right here and just launch into unpacking what Jesus says. So he's mid-speaking to Peter. Peter has just made the great confession of the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves. He's the Christ the promised one from the Old Testament. He's the second person of the Trinity. Verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then that's it. The, the text, Jesus just stops talking. He tells them, don't tell anyone this. And then on the gospel account goes. So what in the world is Jesus doing when Peter makes the great confession of the gospel and then it's as if Peter extends his hands and Jesus says, good job, you're right, here's some keys. What does that mean? The grammatical connection is this. So I'm thinking of last week and what I just read a few moments ago. The connection is this. Jesus builds the church with his gospel. We saw that last week. But Jesus building the church with the gospel involves then giving the local church the keys of the kingdom. So we still don't know what that means, but you can't miss the connection. So the, the gospel doesn't create freelance Christians who just float around like bees pollinating a field, just doing whatever we want. He, he gives and builds local churches and put keys in our hands. So church building with the gospel is tied to the keys of the kingdom whatever that means. So when Peter makes the first gospel confession that we saw last week, Jesus is saying in effect to Peter, you're right, Peter. You got the who of the gospel right. I am Jesus, the promised Christ of the Old Testament, God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity. You have the who right. But Peter also got the what right. The Christ. He's the one who's going to fix all that is broken in the world. Jesus alone is going to right the wrongs that Adam and Eve perpetrated on the world. He is the Christ, the Savior from the Old Testament, promised to rescue and redeem. 
So Jesus affirms to Peter, you have who, correct, Jesus, me, and then you have the what, correct, you're the Christ and you're going to, you're the savior of the world. So, so Jesus acknowledges that to Peter. But one thing that we looked at last week is in this passage in Matthew 16, Jesus is having a one-on-one conversation with Peter. Now, the other apostles are there. They're listening on. But, but, but the, the yous in this passage, uh, uh, when he says, you know, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, uh, when, when he says, um, whatever you bind on earth and I'll give you the keys, the yous are all singular. So he's talking specifically to Peter. But we cleared up last week what, what Jesus is not doing a grave mistake is he's not establishing Peter as the first pope. He's not doing that. He's not designating a, a succession of papal authority from Peter and then Peter's next person, next pope, next pope. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing, Jesus is, is Peter's made a confession of the gospel. So in that sense, Peter is the first Christian, so to speak. And he's saying, you're right, first Christian And now what you're going to do is you're going to preach the gospel and other people are going to believe it. And you're the first stone, the foundation stone, but we're going to add more stones to build the temple of the church. That's in effect what's going on. So he's not establishing the papacy. He's establishing the gospel as building the church. Now, why am I repeating this? Because there's another grave mistake that we can make here. And the grave mistake is this. Yes. In chapter 16, when Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, he's talking to Peter. That is the context. But it's Peter with his gospel confession that we see happen in Acts 2. He preaches the first Christian sermon, preaches the gospel, megachurch is born of 3,000 people. But the grave mistake is to think that Peter alone holds the keys. And that's the error of the Roman Catholic Church. What does the Bible say? And how can I make the claim when the text is clear? He's talking to Peter. Thank you for asking. The answer is in Matthew 18. So keep a finger here. Go over to Matthew 18. And in Matthew 18, in verses 15 through 20, this is a passage where Jesus is teaching about church discipline. I can't go into the whole topic here. But basically, you have a brother, someone of, you have a Christian who sins against another. And he says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell them their fault. But if he refuses to listen to you, go get two or three other people, bring them, and then confront again with tears in your eyes. I'm, I'm adding to the text, but the, the spirit of the text is that, that we're approaching someone, calling them back to Christ because they're trapped in sin. And then, if he doesn't listen to two or three If you pick up in verse 17, Jesus is teaching and he says, if he, the sinning person, refuses to listen to them, the two or three people, Jesus says, tell it to the church. So the concentric circles open. If there's someone who just keeps living in sin, denying the gospel with their life, that we're supposed to go on a rescue mission of grace to try to bring them back to Jesus. And the more and more they refuse, the more and more people are brought in until in verse 17, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. 
that, that's strange language. But if you notice, the person went from if your brother sins against you to the final step is now you designate this brother as a Gentile tax collector. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that's strange talk for saying this person was inside the church as a brother or sister, but now their life is so denying the gospel, either with their lips and or actions, that we can no longer say, if you were to die right now, you definitely love Jesus and follow him. We'd say, if you died right now, we have no confidence that you're actually a Christian. You claim to be a Christian, but the fruit that you bear is thorns in your life. And so when he says, Jesus says, let him be to you a Gentile tax collector, That is someone outside of the New Covenant community that we looked at in the first sermon. Okay, Matthew 18, Jesus is talking about this thing called church discipline, an errand of grace to rescue someone. But look at verse 18. When he says at the end of verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You may notice the clear, unmistakable, undeniable repetition in 1818 of 1619. Jesus is saying the exact same thing again. Here's the keys. And what do the keys do? They bind and loose. They bind and loose. Whatever that means, we don't know yet. But here's what I want you to see. Yes, in chapter 16, he's talking to Peter. But in chapter 18, he's talking to the local church. You cannot miss that context. So all the yous in chapter 18 are y'alls. Y'all need to do this. Y'all need to do that. They're plural yous. It doesn't come through in English. So whatever the keys are and whatever binding and loosing means, here is the first major takeaway you cannot miss. Each local church holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever that means, you seem to see that each local church holds them. So when Jesus uses his gospel to constitute and build local churches, Jesus also gives the keys of the kingdom to those local churches. So every local church comes with a set of keys. This means, practically speaking, that we, at Flagstaff Christian Fellowship, we hold the keys of the kingdom of heaven together based on Matthew 18. And building on Matthew 16, that means that we don't make up who Jesus is. We don't invent what the gospel is or what doctrine is. We go to the Bible and it reveals to us because it's revelation, the truth. But here's the big idea is that we as a group of people agree on the who of the gospel and the what of the gospel. Namely, Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So building gospel churches with the gospel is tied to the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So the whole point of the first point is to whom does Jesus give the keys of the kingdom? To you. That's why I said at the very beginning, I hope that what you begin to see from the word is there is a richness and meaningfulness to our shared Christianity together that is really significant. We're holding something in our hands. It's called keys. What in the world are they for? 
That is number two. What are the keys of the kingdom? So again, look at verse 19 of chapter 16. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So we're holding these keys of the kingdom of heaven. They bind and loose. What is going on here? Now, Jesus is using a metaphor. He's, he's making a word picture. Uh, you say church, and you're supposed to picture a group of people holding a set of keys. It's a strange picture, but they're keys that bind and loose, which is weird, because keys either lock or unlock. So what's going on here? I think one of the best ways to begin to understand what this looks like and what this means is to use a, a, another metaphor in Scripture of another institution holding a different item in their hands to help us understand what we're holding in our hands. So, in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, the government, in all of its forms and levels, is pictured as holding a sword. And this is symbolic of God's authorization of governments to promote and protect life through enforcing justice. That's just not me making up what the symbolism means. If you spend time in Romans 13, 1 through 7, you'll see that's what the picture means. When you picture the government holding a sword, that's supposed to communicate that picture to us that, that they have authorization to promote and protect life through enforcing justice. So, for example, Romans 13, 4, referring to the uh, governor or magistrate or king or queen or whoever is in authority, Romans 13, 4 says, For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he the governor, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Uh, I'd love to jump into that text and talk about it, but here we're looking at it for the sake of the word picture that's painted. So here in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, the biblical picture is painted in our minds of the government holding a sword, and this is symbolic. What we see is the government is God's servant, so it's God authorizing government, not government self-authorizing. Self God is giving authority to governors. He's giving them an area of jurisdiction, a sphere of authority, a realm of legal power and responsibility where they wield the sword. And that's what's going on in Romans 13. So Jesus gives the state the sword. Now back to our text. Jesus gives the state the sword. Jesus gives the local church keys. Keys. So please don't miss this. Jesus giving local churches the keys of the kingdom is not a meaningless metaphor. This is not just a, a picture with word filler. No, um, the church holding the keys has a point. This actually means something. In the same way, the simple picture of the church, excuse me, the state holding the sword refers to power to enforce justice. The simple word picture of you and I holding keys together authorizes us to do something. 
So again, whatever the keys are and whatever binding and loosing is, we hold these keys and Jesus is authorizing. He's giving you and me authority from him to do something. We're being given a jurisdiction, a realm of responsibility, a sphere of authority that we have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That means that we're being given the power to do something. We're being given the right to do something, the responsibility to do something, the jurisdiction to do something. What? We are given the power and right to bind and loose, which is point number three. What then is binding and loosing? If a local church is obligated by Jesus to bind and loose, we probably should know what he means and intends by those words. So let's fit two texts together again. 1619 and 1818. What is binding and loosing? So 1619, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then over to 1818. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does it mean that the keys of the kingdom bind and loose? It's right there in the context of each passage. What's the context of Matthew 16 from last week? Right gospel confession the right jesus and the right work of jesus who of the gospel what of the gospel the context of matthew 16 is jesus affirming peter's first confession of the gospel in matthew 18 it's the antithesis or opposite of gospel confession peter is getting the gospel right it's gospel affirmation Matthew 18 is removing a sinning person, gospel denial. So you have two ends of the spectrum, so to speak. In Matthew 18, it's removing that person from the church who refuses to follow Jesus, whose words and or life deny their profession of faith. So Matthew 16, gospel affirmation. Matthew 18, gospel denial. That is what binding and loosing is. Jesus authorizes the local church to hold the keys, to agree together on the who and what of the gospel. We don't make it up. We get it from the Bible. And then we are charged to listen to and make sure that someone has the right or wrong gospel. Binding and loosing is what the local church is supposed to do with the keys. And binding and loosing is what we do with getting the gospel right. So don't miss the extraordinary and plain meaning of this text. Jesus is authorizing each and every local gospel church. He's giving us the responsibility and jurisdiction to either affirm a person's profession of faith Matthew 16, or deny a person's profession of faith or wrong profession, Matthew 18. Jesus is authorizing the local church and giving us a responsibility and jurisdiction to remove somebody from the church 
as needed with tears in her eyes and pleas of repentance in her voices and her hands clasped, begging someone to turn from their sin and back to Jesus. Nonetheless, Jesus requires local churches to inspect, investigate, watch over each other with our gospel profession. So Jesus expects the local church holding the keys he gave them to bind and loose. Each Christian's profession of the gospel. So binding is the negative term. Loosing is the positive term. Binding is bad. Loosing is good, so to speak. Binding, as in still bound in sin or unforgiven, as the negative term, which a local church, here's what we're required to do. If someone says, hey, I am a Christian, praise God, really tell me, tell me about your, um, how did you become a Christian? And you begin to hear what they believe, you, you might have to say to them, hey, your profession of the gospel is, is wrong. Or I said this last week. Um, there's fake Jesuses out there. He's not one of many gods. He's not a really good man who became God. He is the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. And we have to verify that someone has the right Jesus because wrong Jesuses can't save. Same thing with the what of the gospel. Yeah, you know what? I just cleaned up my life and my sin is not as bad as other people's sin, so I'm pretty good, so God must save me. That's not the gospel. You just really declared that you saved yourself by thinking that you made yourself better in God's eyes. You can't. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can wash away your sins and more. So, so to bind someone in their sin is just to aff- affirm, friend, you, you've got the wrong gospel. You have the wrong Jesus. You have the wrong doctrine. Can I help you understand the truth? No, thanks. I know the truth, and I'm right. We, we can't let them into the church as a body part of the church because they're not. So binding in effect locks the doors to the fellowship of the church. Don't hear that as, as not being invited to church. There's more details on that coming in three weeks. So for now, just metaphorically understand that when the keys bind, we're saying you're actually not one of us. The door's locked. But we would be overjoyed to open the door to you at any moment that you repent from your sins and believe in Jesus. So binding is saying someone is still in their sins because they have the wrong Jesus and or wrong message of Jesus. But loosing is the good news, on the other hand, that we affirm, yes, you know the right Jesus. You know the right work of Jesus. What you're saying is true. It's what I believe also. It's what we all believe because it's what the Bible says. Welcome into the family. So don't miss this glaring fact. Jesus puts the keys into the hands of each and every local church. And then each and every local church, we are supposed to bind and loose. This means that Jesus intends professions of faith to be evaluated by the local church. And then either affirmed by us and accepted or denied by us and rejected. Not because we invent Jesus, not because we get to make up our own teachings, but because we go to the book and the book tells us the truth and what to believe and we help each other in that belief. But if this does not happen, if it's not true that Jesus intends our professions of faith to be evaluated by the church, 
the keys are meaningless. It's what they mean. So, like I said last week, that means that your profession of faith is intensely personal, but it is absolutely not private. So the whole idea of having an optional add-on of Christianity to your life, the whole idea of of being able to um, just never commit to any band of believers, never have your faith investigated, Jesus is letting you know you should not have confidence that you're saved because no one has confirmed that. We'll come back to that. So so this is the part of the privilege of the church holding the keys. And this, friends, this biblical truth, this, this fact, this is what is so offensive to us. We like a lot of teachings of Jesus, but here you're starting to hear this and you're thinking, wait a second. Um, this is offensive to our self-defining, autonomous, individualistic, don't tell me what to do, species of Christianity that we're raised in in the West. But let God be true and every man a liar. Let me say this plainly. If you have not submitted yourself to a local church to have your faith affirmed or denied, if you have not submitted yourself to the possible discipline of a local church, if you have not been invited by a local church to hold the keys with them, you are not walking in the fullness of Jesus' gospel purposes for your life. Because this is what Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 intends. And this is what makes being a Christian such a remarkable privilege. Why would Jesus choose to do this? Why would he authorize local churches to bind and loose to hear affirmations or denials of someone's profession of faith? This is God's wisdom. And as Jesus says back in 1619, or here in 1818, whatever is bound or loosed on earth is bound or loosed in heaven. That strange language, here's what it clearly means. Jesus only saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We don't save. We cannot unsave anybody. That is not true to the Bible. Only God saves. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus redeems. We can't redeem anybody. We can't make anybody more redeemed or less redeemed. We are merely observers and listeners. We listen to what someone says about the gospel and we observe the fruit in their life. So don't misunderstand this to teach that we can actually say someone is saved or unsaved. So part of the language of binding and loosing, probably have a footnote in your Bible. The grammar is strange because it reads, whatever you bind or loose on earth shall have been bound in, in heaven. So in other words, we don't save And yet the keys authorize us to affirm or deny. In other words, what's taking place is that we are affirming or denying a reality that already exists in heaven. The person saved and we see them visibly bearing fruit and they tell us about the gospel. And we say, yep, yep, praise God, you're one of us. You're a fellow gospel believer and confessor. So, so don't mishear or misunderstand to think that we save anyone or we de-save anybody. We can't. Only Jesus saves. And you cannot lose your salvation, by the way. So binding and loosing 
does not create truth in heaven. Binding and loosing reveals heaven's truth on earth. So the keys of the kingdom are placed in our hands together by Jesus. The local church is required by Jesus to hear a person's personal profession of the gospel. And then we either say yes or no, bind or loose, lock or unlock a person to the membership of a local church. This necessarily means Jesus expects every confessing Christian to confess the gospel to a local church, join that local church, hold the keys with that church, and participate in the discipline with that church. So point number four then, if, if we have now asked to whom does Jesus give the keys, the local church, what are the keys? It's a metaphor for affirming and denying someone's profession of faith, which is what binding and loosing is. Point number four, how in the world do we do the metaphor? How in the world does the local church exercise the keys? How are we as a church family supposed to do this? And this is where we're going to have an overview of the next coming three weeks, Lord willing. So um, we can't drill down deep. So I'm just going to be saying some biblical truths real fast, and you just need to put it in your pocket, study the Bible about it, come back next week. But if you would, turn over to the last chapter of Matthew, not 16, not 18, turn to chapter 28, to begin to look at how in the world does the local church wield, exercise, use the keys of the kingdom. Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. He's risen from the grave. This is one of his last conversations with the disciples before he goes into heaven. And Matthew 16 is the great confession of the gospel. This is the great commission of the gospel. Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, the disciples, the apostles, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, real quick, when you look at verse 19, Jesus is not telling the church to do four different things. Some of you go, some of you make disciples, some of you baptize, some of you teach. There's a single command, and it's the verb, make disciples. That's verse 19. Go, baptize, and teach are participles that modify the verb. You are welcome to talk about participles modifying verbs. Oh, so exciting. But it is because it helps us understand what's going on. So the one command Jesus tells, his church, tells the disciples, go make disciples. Well, how, Jesus? Well, you need to go. You need to evangelize. If they believe, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bring them into the new covenant community, the local church, and teach them everything the Bible says. In other words, Matthew 28 is Matthew 16 in action. Matthew 16 is Peter's great gospel confession, and the great gospel confession leads to the great gospel commission. 
Matthew 28 is Matthew 16 in action. The problem is one unintended error is that we think when Jesus says, go make disciples, that in effect, I don't think anybody would say this, but in effect, it's go make disciples who become sheep that just roam on the hillsides. But context is not just a few verses. Context is the whole book and then the whole Bible. And the whole book would say, well, Jesus, how do we do Matthew 16? He says, go do Matthew 28. That's how you do Matthew 16. So I want to make a proposal to you. Um, I want you to think of it this way. When Jesus hands the local church, the keys of the kingdom, that keychain has three keys on it. That's why it's plural, three keys. I'm just summing up here what the Bible teaches. And here they are, and this is where we're going in the coming weeks. Number one, the three keys on the keychain to the keys of the kingdom of heaven is this. The key to baptism, the key to communion, or the Lord's Supper, and the key to excommunion, or church discipline. So let me just summarize that briefly, because our question is, okay, if we're supposed to bind and loose, affirm and deny, lock and unlock, how do we do that? Thank you, Matthew 28, for showing us how we go make disciples. So, so Jesus' intention for the church to affirm or deny a person's profession of the gospel, to affirm it, always leads to baptism. Matthew 28, go make disciples baptizing we don't just grab people and just dunk them and say you're baptized now just like dunk 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 or people around you actually have to hear them you preach the saving grace of jesus christ we're justified by faith not works here's jesus the person says i believe in that jesus and i want my sins removed praise god and we say praise god praise god with you now we are going to dunk you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's symbolic of Jesus' death and then rising to new life, Romans 6, next week. But Jesus commands baptism of those who confess the great confession in obedience to the great commission. So baptism is like the first step of obedience by going public with your faith. Your faith is affirmed by the church. Do you stay up late at night wondering why we're not allowed to baptize ourselves? Is that something that perplexes you and you just spend a lot of time thinking about? I mean, intuitively, I think most people recognize that to get baptized requires a baptizer who does the baptizing of the baptized one. Jesus is not authorized to baptize ourselves. He tells the disciples, Go and baptize. Why? Because the disciples preach the gospel. Someone says, yes, I believe that. So then the first key to open the door to the kingdom of heaven is your sins are forgiven. Now be baptized visibly as a symbol of you believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Baptism doesn't save us. It doesn't save anybody. But it's a symbol of that we are saved. It's showing the reality in heaven being made visible on earth. We don't baptize ourselves. We only get baptized once, by the way. And we don't get re-baptized every time we change churches. So, so that in part is why the elders do membership interviews on behalf of this church family. 
someone comes into the church, how do we know they're a true believer? How do we know they're not a wolf or a heretic? How do we know that they're a genuine person who is confused about the gospel? We want to help them. So what the elders do is we do membership interviews on behalf of you. And we hear their profession of faith and we hear their testimony of baptism. And if they weren't baptized as a believer, because believers get baptized, Jeremiah 31, first sermon in the series, if they're not baptized as a believer, we would encourage them to get baptized as a believer. So understand this. Every time we as a church, I keep pointing to the baptismal. If you didn't know it was there, that's why I keep pointing that way to that beautiful piece of plexiglass. So when we're standing behind the plexiglass, what you've heard me say every time I've performed a baptism here is I baptize you on behalf of this church because the church has set me and the fellow pastor elders apart to, on, to hold the keys on our behalf to hear a profession of the gospel, go up and say, hey, everybody, I heard Billy's confession of the gospel. He loves Jesus. And then you guys are like, yay. And then we baptize and he comes out. And then when, the, when he comes out of the water, this is us saying, you are one of us now. And it's him saying, I'm one of you now. And it's not a privatized, individualized moment. You're not just witnesses. You are participants of seeing someone born into the kingdom, so to speak. Or going from death to life into the kingdom. Baptism is how we together exercise the first key of the kingdom. The second key is to the Lord's table or communion. We saw in the first message of this series, Luke twenty two twenty, Jesus said on the night of his betrayal that the cup that was poured out for them was the new covenant in Christ's blood. So communion then, why did Jesus invent communion? Communion is the sign of the new covenant. And every time we take communion together, we show our ongoing good standing together as new covenant people a.k.a. the local church. If baptism is the front door into the church, communion is the dinner table that we enjoy each week together to think about what Jesus has done, show forth his gospel, but then show that we are still, it makes us visible to each other. The reason I say it makes us visible is the Bible says every time we gather, there's going to be brothers and sisters from other churches visiting who are true believers, but not, haven't been affirmed or denied by our church family. We have friends who are not yet believers, but coming and considering Christ. And so one of the ways that when we take the Lord's Supper is it shows who belongs to the church family. That's the second key. Every time we take the Lord's Supper together, we are exercising the second key of the kingdom, communion. And so the third key of the kingdom, Matthew 18, is excommunion. Excommunication, church discipline. And that is the removal of someone from the communion of the saints and the Lord's table and the membership of the church. If the church can no longer say, hey, the confidence that we had when you got baptized and you gave us your testimony of the gospel, but now since then your life has been nothing but denying the gospel. And with tears as if we've gone to you and asked you to repent and to love you and to help you understand. And you're like, nope, I don't want any part of it. If you're happy letting your life blaspheme Jesus, friend, we don't think that you're saved. Or we can't have confidence in your salvation. 
it looks like you made a false profession of faith. And so Jesus authorizes us to say, whether you like it or not, we have to remove you from the roles of the church because the way that you're living refuses the gospel. That's the third key of the kingdom. The reason the Lord's table is withheld is because that's a sign of being in the new covenant. But if someone is not in the new covenant, they can't partake in the new covenant sign. So with tears in our eyes and faithfulness to Jesus, every time we exercise church discipline, we're exercising the keys of the kingdom together. That's the third key of the kingdom. So so in this overview of this mysterious passage, the keys for binding and loosing are intended by Jesus to make us distinct from people in the world and to make the invisible church visible. The gospel has boundaries. There's right and wrong. There's in and out. The new covenant is not a a, a hazy, fuzzy line. You are either born again by the Spirit or you're not. And uh, the book of Revelation speaks of how there's the Lamb's book of life that has every name written down of believers. So, So heaven keeps records of the universal church. By implication, the local church keeps record of the visible church among us. So what is a church? At bare minimum, a definition of a local church is this. A true and faithful church is a gospel congregation who mutually affirm and watch over one another in Christ by holding the keys of the kingdom together. And baptism, communion, and excommunion, excommunication. Number five, and finally, how do we respond to this? What, 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 what do we do with this? Jesus' teaching on the keys of the kingdom establishes the biblical basis for church membership. Uh, some of you have been around and you, you know my, uh, my testimony. I got saved when I was 21 in a tradition, a certain church tradition, that taught me to believe that the Bible does not teach membership. It's a man-made invention, power grab, don't tell me what to do. And I believed that. And I used to teach that until the Lord corrected me from his word to see that the Bible clearly teaches it. What do I mean? Search high and low, look at a concordance, you will not find the word Trinity in the Bible. And yet, Trinity is the best word that we can use to describe and summarize all the Bible teaches that there is only one God who exists in three persons. One God in three persons. So in the same way that we use the word Trinity to describe our doctrine of God, we use the word membership to describe all that Jesus and his New Testament teaches about what it means to belong to a local church. The doctrine of the keys of the kingdom, foundationally, is the strongest evidence for formal church membership. And I'll explain more of that in a moment. Based on Matthew 16, Matthew 18, Matthew 28, Jesus expects every gospel professor to place themselves in a position where a local church can exercise the keys over them. And then they can also exercise the keys with them to join and hold the keys together. To be a member of a church is to have your 
had your confession of the gospel and baptism evaluated by the church somehow, it means we affirm the same Jesus, same core doctrine, same practices, so we can strive side by side for the sake of the gospel together. To be a member is to be welcomed to the Lord's table because we know your testimony from baptism. And over and over again, we are reaffirming each other. Yes, brother. Yes, sister. You are still following Jesus imperfectly like I am. And I need you as you need me to help each other know and follow Jesus together to cross the finish line into glory. So over and over again, we take the Lord's table together to show that we're still in the new covenant. And to be a member is to place yourself in submission to a local church and be in a position for you to exercise excommunication with a local church. How a local church accomplishes this, Scripture does not specify. This is part of the beauty of of Christ's word. In other words, to exercise the keys of the kingdom, baptism, communion, uh, and church discipline, it will look very different from an underground house church in Iran of two families from the multi-site megachurch of 10,000 in San Diego. So it's going to look different how they formally do it, but they have to formally do it. You have to distinguish who's in and who's out for the glory of Christ. We have to recognize recognize that Jesus demands some type of official or formal process be in place for baptism to happen, for communion to happen, and Lord's Supper to be exercised. So four ways to respond then. Uh, I said this last week, and if you were here last week, and, and you don't yet know Christ, this is a complex sermon. and There's a lot of details in there. And if you were to summarize it, you just heard me say, church, 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 keys, 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 loose, bind. And that's a good summary of the sermon. But what I want you to hear is Jesus, 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 Jesus saves. That's what you need to hear so that you can become part of our family. Friend, if you don't know Christ, the most important thing for you to do right now is to turn from your sins and believe in this God-man, truly God and truly man Jesus, who came to live, die, and rise for us. Turn from your sins, renounce them, embrace Jesus, get baptized. By having your profession of the gospel affirmed. But to my friends, maybe you're visiting, you're a believer from out of town and you're visiting, or maybe you've just, just us as a church family. Friends, ask yourself this question. Personalize it. Have I placed myself in a position for a local church to exercise the keys in my life? By affirming my gospel confession, not on my terms, but on the church's terms. Again, the church doesn't invent the gospel. We don't invent Jesus. We don't get to make up our own theology. We do the best we can to get our understanding from the book. But have you done that? Have you submitted yourself to a local church? Next, ask yourself, have I placed myself in a position where you can exercise these keys of the kingdom with a local church? You know, um, the Bible speaks of voting. I don't know if you knew that. So in 1 Corinthians 5, it talks about a majority decision being made to exclude a brother from the church. Some process had to be in place. Uh, 
we don't know what it was, but some process was in place to determine who was a majority and who wasn't. Uh, there's a Greek word to describe the raising of hands in decisions. It's unclear whether it's voting for a decision or laying hands on to pray for somebody. But there's the principle. Listen, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and looks like a duck, guess what it is? A rabbit. No, it's a duck. And, and I would say that when you fit the Bible together, all the different details show us that there is a doctrine called church membership. And so have you placed yourself in a position where you can be an obedient Christian who can also exercise the keys of the kingdom? Can you sit here when we baptize somebody, say, yes, I have been affirmed, and now I am affirming together with my family your profession of the gospel? And if it comes to it, if we have to exclude somebody from membership, by God's grace, will you be able to raise a hand in that decision also? Again, the next weeks, more details are coming. Have you placed yourself in that position? And lastly, here's my exhortation to you. With all the complexities and maybe newness of this teaching, and I encourage you to go back and re-listen to the sermon and investigate for yourself. But here's what I want you to see. Jesus has put keys in your hand. He has. In God's all-wise plan, he takes a bunch of imperfect people like you and I, binds us together with his perfect gospel to worship a perfect Savior as we follow him imperfectly and give grace to each other to help each other know and follow Jesus. And imagine that it's, this is not a spectator sport. You come, get entertained or de-entertained, and then you leave. No, you are here together to, to rejoice that we have been given a privilege and responsibility by Christ to watch out for each other. If there is in your mind any notion that it's only the pastor elder's job to watch out for the church, but not yours, that's not Bible. We are on guard. We are supposed to fence, the pastors are. We are supposed to refute those who contradict and watch out for wolves and heretics and things like that. More to come. But we are responsible for each other. So if someone's missing or if someone goes away or disappears, it's all of our responsibility to go find that person, not just mine. It's all of us. That's the beauty of being Christians in Christ. So friends, there is a truth, there's a texture to being a local church. There's something the gospel does to us that doesn't just save us. The gospel puts keys in your hands. And those keys are amazing. But you don't hold them by yourself. You hold them with us. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your plan. We may not understand it, Lord. We may not, uh, we may not understand it, but, but Lord, you have poured out remarkable grace on us that you would authorize us to recognize what's already true in heaven by binding and loosing, locking and unlocking, for recognizing forgiveness or recognizing unforgiveness as you define it, not us. So, Lord, let us be found to be a faithful church and help us today and these coming weeks to understand your mind for your bride, your body, your temple, your family, and more. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you pour out your grace upon us. Father, thank you for the Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, we're going to sing a song, and then um, one of our elders,